Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We are moving briskly through 1 Thessalonians. We will slow down, particularly in chapters 4 and 5. 1 Thessalonians 3. We find ourselves in verses 1 through 5 this evening. We have been talking about ministry now for three Sunday nights. As we've spoken of ministry, we have spoken of ministry's motivation, mindset. We have spoken of Paul and the way that he framed his mind around ministry, that the ministry motivation was the glory of God, that the ministry of mindset was selflessness. Last week, as we continued speaking about ministry, we spoke about the battle. That it's not just us fighting our own motivations to want glory in ministry, to want recognition. It's not just us fighting our, our flesh as it seeks to um, have some alternative motive than simply the glory of God. But we're also fighting an external battle, an external enemy. That we are fighting Satan who seeks to hinder us, who seeks to cause us to fall, to deceive us into falling, to um, discourage us from the ministry, to divert us, to distract us. Anything that he can do to make us ineffective in ministry. Well, tonight we're going to talk about one more topic that's perhaps not, 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 not um, encouraging, but needful. And then next week, we're going to pick ourselves up a little bit. This week is ministry's danger. Next week is ministry's victories. So bear with me this week. Perhaps these haven't been, in, in some ways, the, the most encouraging messages, at least last week and this week. But we're getting there. See, because ministry... Um, Because it is serving the Lord, being light in the darkness, you're surrounded by darkness. And what that means is it's going to be a battle. It's going to be tough. At the end of the day, you're weary. You're worn. And as we think about that, a battle is a good analogy, isn't it? The daily struggle. You come home from the end of a battle and the soldier is weary. The soldier is perhaps a little bit injured. The soldier is dragging another soldier behind him. But another reason why this might be a good analogy is because just like in a battle, a physical battle, the, the spiritual battle of ministry has casualties. Paul knew this well. And we would do well to understand it also. That all along the path that we would call Christianity, there are those who have fallen by the wayside, perhaps coming so close to victory that is the faith that overcomes the world, only to give up and yield the blessings of the world to come for the joys of this world. Now, what am I not talking about this evening? What will we not be talking about? I'm not talking about losing your salvation. There's nothing in the Bible that implies doctrinally 
that a person can lose their salvation once they have it. Jesus Christ tells us that no man can pluck us, that nothing, if we look at uh, the Greek, it's a little, little bit more accurate to say nothing can pluck you out of my Father's hand. That literally when we are saved, we are placed by the Holy Spirit into Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit. That we are in Christ. It's not that we're holding Christ, it's that Christ is holding us. And regardless of whether or not we're hanging on tight one day or, or we're wandering like that lost sheep that Jesus Christ speaks of in the, the parable of the 99 and the 1, even if we're that one that's wandered astray, the, the shepherd's out looking for us. That parable is not about 99 saved and one lost unbeliever. That parable is about 100 saved and one who has wandered. Nowhere in the Bible would... Uh, would, would we see a reference to a sheep who is not already in the flock? And so, I'm not talking about losing our salvation this evening. What I'm talking about is those who have understood the message that Jesus is God and what He has done for them, but have never received it. And we'll talk about this. Those who have heard it, those who like it, those who can relate to it, but those who have never received it. The casualties. See, salvation was secured for everyone through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, but salvation will not be received by all. Many who you and I minister unto, whether they have rejected us or whether they've come very close but never quite taken the step will become casualties of the spiritual battle that's waged over souls. Many will come close only to turn away. Many will be curious but will lose interest. Many will follow the wolves in sheep's clothing, walking merrily behind false teachers that are leading them right to the gates of hell. And this is the danger that we face every day. Not so much a danger for we who are in Christ and know that, but the danger as we look out upon our ministries and know that for some who are brought into the fold, there will be those who aren't. The casualties of the battle. And Paul found himself in a place of concern over this. And we, we know the end. We know that Paul is writing to a church that was victorious. But tonight in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1-5, Paul is going to describe the condition of his heart and Silas's heart and Timothy's heart at the time that they left Thessalonica. And so let's read, if you would, 1 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 5. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. That no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. Did you see in that last verse Paul's concern? Lest 
by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. We're going to talk about what Paul means there and it doesn't mean they lose their salvation. Recall the deeper context that we considered in the book uh, sermon as it relates to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is where we see Paul and Silas and Timothy in Thessalonica and we see that they leave Thessalonica fleeing for their, for their lives and ending up in Berea. Berea is not too far from Thessalonica. In fact, close enough that the wicked Jews from Thessalonica chased them to Berea looking to destroy them even though they weren't in Thessalonica anymore. Their attempt to contain their concern, however, for the believers in Thessalonica boiled over there. They had a ministry in Berea, without a doubt, but their heart and mind was still in some way, in many ways, back in Thessalonica. Through the circumstances at hand, these ministers were put into a situation where they had to leave believers behind in a state where the, the ministers believed the church to be ill-prepared spiritually for what they were going to face. Like sending a soldier into battle without completing boot camp. Paul was concerned that they had left these men and women in a situation where they were set up to fail. Where they had not quite understood the gospel enough and they had not quite seen the fruit of the gospel that gave Paul the assurances that these men and women were where they needed to be to face what they were about to face. And this was Paul's concern. So he says, when we could no longer forbear, the idea of this word being that they had no ability to, con- to, to endure their concern any longer, something had to give, and their solution was to send Timotheus back to them. Paul was unable to go. So when they got to Athens, they, they said, we're going to go to Athens alone. That would be Paul and Silas or Silvanus. Timothy goes directly back to Thessalonica. Now, when Paul is in Athens, he's alone. We don't know where Silas went. But the implication of the text is that, Paul, that we thought it best to be left in Athens alone. So Paul and Silas, and so they sent Timotheus. And then Paul and Silas went to Athens, at which point Silas went somewhere. Perhaps he went to catch up with Timothy. The implication seems to be that he went to catch up with Timothy. But this was the solution. Paul couldn't go back, but maybe Timothy was seen as less of a threat. And Paul sent Timothy with two goals, we see in verse 2. First, to establish them in the faith, to continue the discipleship, to help them build upon the faith that they had already learned. And second, to encourage them to continue in the faith. Second, to comfort you concerning the faith. To continue in the faith that they have learned and received. To take that which they have learned and stand firm on it even in the midst of trial. Even in the midst of trouble. Even in the midst of difficulty because it was coming. As a matter of fact, it had come already. And Paul was afraid that they had no one strong enough to keep them firm. Now these are the two most essential needs for any believer in the faith. You and I. We need to be established in the faith, taught doctrine, and then we need to be comforted concerning the faith. We need accountability and fellowship. That's why the church is here. That's what we're about. We're here to establish each other in the faith and then to comfort one another in the faith. So when we're going through the hard times, even though we've learned things, we're reminded of things through one another. And when we're going through the struggles, 
were taught how to handle them. And Paul feared that they were not ready. That many had not come to the necessary place of yieldedness and love for Christ that is indicative of those who have truly accepted Christ as Savior. Paul perhaps had not seen the fruit of their salvation and his doubts remained. And we'll see that because of what he says in verse 5 about the tempter tempting them and their labor being in vain. These men being tempted to reject the faith. So sending Timothy was Paul's best solution. Timothy was a faithful laborer, a minister of the gospel. and a close brother of Paul and Christ. In verse 3, Paul says that the purpose of Timothy, the, the end desire was that no man should be moved, shaken, that word literally means, by the afflictions, by the pressure that they were under. Paul says, For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto, Paul could not stop the persecution that the church would face. Paul had no ability to control the wicked men who had stirred the city into an uproar and fostered a spirit of violent antagonism against God and God's church. But what Paul did know is that the believer in Jesus Christ is one who can endure these afflictions and remain unmoved in his faith. Now, the confidence Paul did possess is that those who had indeed truly accepted Christ and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ could come through this time with their faith and their joy intact. And Paul reminds them in verse 5 that he and his companions had told them of the tribulation that would come. For verily, second half of verse 3, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Verse 4, For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. Paul was no stranger to tribulation. He was no stranger to persecution. Just prior to Thessalonica, he and Silas had been in the jail in Philippi. In Paul's first missionary journey, he had been stoned at Lystra by a mob that had followed him from Antioch and Iconium to stir up the people in Lystra and they stoned him and they threw him outside the gates of the city and left him for dead. And the Bible says he got up, he wiped the dust off of him and he moved on. God was certainly protecting him, but he was no stranger to persecution, to tribulation, to trial. Paul knew that this would be another city of tribulation, and indeed it was. But you know, it's one thing when you suffer it. It's another thing when you see others suffer it who perhaps aren't as strong and ready for it. I told you a couple of weeks ago about my children when they were sick. I can be sick. That's fine. I'm miserable when my daughters are sick. Especially when Benjamin was sick. He was sick with us. I've told people he kind of had a little... 
his face, his, his, his sinuses were so um, swollen that his eyes were squinty. And he looked like a little Buddha doll. You know how the Buddha's like smiling and he's got the big cheeks and the squinty eyes? Yeah, that's what he looked like because his, his sinuses were so swollen. I was miserable. I'm sure he was miserable too, but I was miserable. Why? Because, yeah, okay, I get sick. I've got a runny nose. I know what's going on. I know how, how much my body can handle. Uh, my nose is running. I, I've got a box of tissues that's become my pillow. But I, I, I'm under, it's under control. But Benjamin can't tell me how he's doing. I don't know how he's doing. I don't know how bad it is. I hear his poor little cough. I see his little runny nose. I see his swollen, his swollen uh, uh, sinuses. And I know he's just got this little, little body and this little immune system and these little lungs and these little sinuses and, and the poor thing. Well, imagine Paul. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's, he's gone through it all. And he leaves. And, you know, he, he faced some tri- tribulation. He faced some persecution. And now he looks back at that city and he realizes that the tribulation didn't stop when he left. That the hornet's nest that was stirred up in that city wasn't one that left with him. Yeah, they chased him. But when they got back to that city... There were still Christians imprisoned, men being beaten, martyred for their faith. And Paul realized that this hornet's nest was one that was going to chase every Christian down in that city. And that was his concern. And so it was, according to verse 5, that when Paul couldn't forbear any longer, he sent Timothy to help, but also to see if their faith faith had held firm or if the spiritual battle that raged over their souls had brought about the situation, circumstances whereby Satan had tempted some of them to forsake the truth of the gospel for safety and peace in their city. And this is the danger of the ministry. And we've briefly considered the concern that Paul had for the faith of these men and women, but I'd like us to park in another passage for the rest of this evening in order that we can both understand and perhaps relate to the kind of concern that Paul had for the faith of men and women in this church, the church of Thessalonica, so that we can relate to this concern. It wasn't just a concern for baby Christians. It was a concern for the eternal souls of the men and women that had begun to taste of the truth of the gospel in this city. When Paul left the church in Thessalonica, I am not confident that he was completely sure he was leaving a group of true believers behind. He had been with them a short time and it seems likely that Paul had not had the opportunity yet to see fruit borne out in all of them. He'd been teaching them and discipling them, but they were still young. And he didn't know when the pressure was on, when their faith was truly tested, if these men and women would stand with Christ or against him. And to understand Paul's thinking better, as I believe Paul was thinking, would you turn with me please to Matthew chapter 13? In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is speaking and he gives several parables that are meant to illustrate the character and the nature of the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, one of these parables is called the parable of the sower. You're probably pretty familiar with it. Now, I'd like us to walk through it this evening to understand perhaps some of the concern that Paul may have been under with relation to this church. We'll begin by reading the parable itself, starting in verse 3 and going through verse 9. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth. And forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus gives this parable and he concludes it with that warning. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. But what does this parable mean? What is Jesus talking about? What is he trying to teach about the nature of the kingdom of heaven? I believe what he's trying to teach is the very concern that Paul had for these men and women in Thessalonica. And he explains this parable beginning in verse 19 of chapter 13. In the first scenario, which he gives in verse 19, is seeds that have fallen by the wayside. He says, when, when anyone heareth the words of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. So the picture describes a man who hears the gospel. He doesn't fully understand the gospel. And before he can wrap his mind around it, before that seed has time to to sink in, before the gospel has time to truly take root in any way in his heart, the birds come and they snatch it. Satan brings adversity or distress or distraction, perhaps even prosperity into their lives and they either become offended at God for the distress that they're under or they feel like they don't need God anymore because of the prosperity that they have. And so whatever seed of the gospel may have found its way onto their heart never roots in their heart because something snatches it away. Something in this world, something of Satan, snatches it away. These men and women become easy prey for philosophies uh, that are false, for humanistic ideas, because they have never come to truly understand what the gospel is what it offers, and why they need it. Now, the believers in Thessalonica were beyond this stage. They had understood the gospel. The the, the seed had gone deeper than just the surface level of their, the soil of their hearts. But we meet many who are this way. Men and women who we give the gospel and it's, it just, it's like it completely goes right by them. 
They don't understand it. They don't grasp it. They don't see the need for it. They're not interested in it. These are those where as you sow the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it hits nothing but, but, but wayside. And the birds come and the, whatever it is of this world comes and just snatches it away. Verses 20 and 21 describe another scenario. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word and anon with joy receiveth it. So this man hears it and he understands it. He knows what the gospel is saying. Yet he hath, yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. The second scenario we'd call the scenario of the seeds that fell upon stony ground. These men and women hear the gospel, they understand the gospel's claims, and they receive the gospel's claims with joy. See, and notice how I said it there, they receive its claims with joy. The gospel makes magnificent claims, doesn't it? I mean, magnificent. The gospel is a magnificent thing. The gospel gives us power to conquer sin. The gospel says you can conquer your sin through Christ, not through you, through Christ. The gospel promises us a home in heaven. The gospel promises us a thriving personal relationship with the Creator, God, with our Redeemer, so that we're never alone, never outnumbered, never defeated. We are cast down but not forsaken. Paul says. We're not destroyed though we are persecuted. That's the power of the Gospel. The Gospel is the light of this world. The Gospel is the hope of the world to come. The world loves these things. The world doesn't hear about heaven and the fruit of the Gospel, love and joy and peace and long-suffering and temperance and meekness and faith, the world doesn't hear those things and say, ew, with the exception of that small contingency of completely perverse people. The world hears those things and says, that's what we want, right? Peace on earth, that's what we want. Joy and happiness, that's what we want. Prosperity, that's what we want. Kindness and love, we want those things. Forgiveness, yep, yep, we want that. It was Watchman Nee, a theologian from China before the revolution, who wrote once, the world loves the fruit of Christianity, but the world hates the Christian. The world loves the fruit of Christianity, but the world hates the Christian. See, there are many that receive the claims of the gospel with joy, but the gospel isn't all about happiness, is it? When Jesus Christ came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus Christ came healing the blind and the, and the leprous and the, the lame and, and, and doing these magnificent, marvelous things, He also came with a statement of obligation, didn't He? The Gospel isn't for everyone who wants it. The Gospel is for everyone who's willing to accept it. May I say that again? Wrap your mind around it. The gospel is not for everyone who wants it. The gospel is for everyone who is willing to accept it. Everyone wants the gospel, but not everyone is willing to accept the gospel. 
Pastor, what in the world do you mean? What's the difference? When I was affiliated with the police department when I was in high school, tasers were coming into their own. They were the next big thing in less than lethal technology. At the time, the best less than lethal option that was available to police officers was pepper spray. Batons, pepper spray, and um, beanbag shotguns were what, what they had at the time. But really, pepper spray was, was the best incapacitating option where you're, you're not going to cause any lingering damage. But pepper spray came with a number of drawbacks, particularly that oftentimes police officers got it in their own eyes, and it partially incapacitated them as well. So my department was transitioning to using tasers. And during this transition... The officers were going through classes instructing them concerning their uses and their benefits. Now, after all of the classes and all of the training, understanding how many volts, understanding when it could be used, understanding some of the drawbacks, understanding all of these things about tasers, they knew everything that they needed to know to use them, but there was one more thing they had to do. They had to be tased themselves. No one is allowed to carry one. No officer is allowed to carry a taser who has not been tased himself. Now, they had received everything necessary to use a taser. And they could have used it for the rest of their career without ever having been tased. And they'd still be able to use it. But they were unwilling, or if they were unwilling to accept the pain of being tased, they were not allowed to carry a taser. The world loves the ideals of the gospel. Many men and women love the concept of heaven. Many men and women see the need to conquer their sin. They, they know they can't do it. Many men and women understand the benefits of a heart of generosity and love. Many men and women want the inward joy and peace of resting in a God that is beyond the circumstances of this world. Many men and women will spend their days learning about this God in some way, shape, or form. But of those many, only a few are willing to accept the negative consequences of associating with Jesus Christ. Now let's be clear. Jesus is not describing men and women who truly accept Christ and then eventually forsake Him and go to hell. We've already talked about that. This is not about losing your salvation. Jesus is describing those who say they have accepted Christ, who are happy to associate themselves with Christ, but in their hearts they do not truly love Christ enough to accept the shame or the persecution that would come on His behalf. And Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 10.38 that he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Salvation is not about simply believing in your mind that what Jesus said is true. Salvation is when you put yourself on the side of truth. Salvation is not when you stand in the world and point to the cross and say, that is true. Salvation is when you step across the line away from the world and say, I'm with Christ. Salvation is not when you're sitting in the religious fan section with your number one finger saying, go team and watching Jesus Christ play on the field. Salvation is when you get out of the fan section, step onto the field and play with him. And if a man flees from Christ when tribulation and persecution arise, Jesus makes it clear that the seed of the gospel fell onto stony ground. 
the roots were shallow and the seed never bore fruit unto salvation. It means he was never saved to begin with. We'll continue to explain the parable, but this was the scenario that Paul, Paul feared in the Thessalonian believers. That perhaps those seeds... See, because the Thessalonian believers received everything that Paul said with joy, right? He already said that in chapter 2. That when you heard the gospel, you received it with joy. And as he said in chapter 2, what I was so glad is that you didn't receive it as my gospel, but as God's gospel. You received it as truth. What Paul was saying there is, now that I look at your circumstances and I hear of your testimony, what I know is that it wasn't just you receiving the good, it was that you were receiving the truth. The seed dug deep and bore fruit. But Paul's fear when he sent Timothy back to them was that these might just be stony ground. That he hadn't had enough time to cultivate the ground, to loosen it up to where that seed could truly sink deep enough that when persecution arose, were the roots deep enough? Was the fruit born? Was salvation truly there? Or or would they be offended in Christ? That was the warning of Jesus. We can't relate to this one much in this country. There's not a lot of persecution around here to go around. Yeah, we can call these things persecution. And it's true. You know, we, you, you see about people being flunked out of college classes and people being... Um, I, I, when I was in high school, um, I nearly failed my speech class because my speech final was evolution versus creation. And boy, my teacher didn't like my findings. And uh, she was an evolutionist through and through. I nearly failed the class. I had to, I had to uh, appeal to her sense of, of justice to, to take that A that I had before that speech and not completely fail the class. These things happen, but, but that's minor, is it not? Compared to what we think of right now in Niger, in the Middle East, Churches being burned, Christians being beheaded, families being destroyed, jobs being lost, uh, kids being disowned by their parents because they claim Christ. We don't really know persecution in this country, so this is not one that we can relate to on any um, deep level. But the next one will be the one. Let's talk about it. Matthew 13.22. This is the third scenario. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. The scenario of the seed which takes root but the thorns choke it out. Like the previous scenario, this is one person that again, he receives the gospel with gladness. The claims of the gospel And often, for the same reasons as before, they don't want to go to hell. They want to be a good person. They, Perhaps being a Christian is a a cool thing to be, like like right now in in America. It's kind of the way it is. Christianity is a fad. It's the thing to do. You're you're a Christian. You're cool. Uh, For whatever reason, they accept the claims of the gospel. But just like the previous scenario, these men and women want the gospel but are unwilling to accept the gospel. Instead of the problem, however, being the persecution that accompanies associating themselves with Christ, 
These men and women falter when it comes to the self-sacrifice that is asked by Christ in the heart of the believer. Once again, these men and women are more willing to point to Jesus and say, yes, He's the way, the truth, and the life than they are to say, yes, I'm walking next to Jesus. They're willing to point as long as Jesus doesn't interfere with their love for the world. As soon as following Jesus asks them to change the way they live, they're done. As soon as following Jesus asks them to give up their wealth to serve God, they're out. As soon as following Jesus asks them for their time or for their career or for their amusements, they say, nope, nope, not me. Just like the last group. These are men and women who sit in the stands of religion and good intentions and cheer for Jesus from a distance. Just like the last group. These are men and women who will cry as they see Jesus bear His cross, but say no thank you when their cross is presented to them. This was not Paul's concern for Thessalonica. But this is our concern in 21st century America. We live in this kind of a culture. A Matthew 13.22 kind of a culture. There's relatively little persecution for our faith in this country. There will not be many that will find offense because of the opposition they feel. But you will come across a numberless host of men and women in the community in which we live who will gladly accept the gospel as long as it's on their terms. As long as the gospel doesn't ask them for anything. As long as the gospel is completely without a change to them. All around you are churches with religious cheerleaders, but few are willing to join Jesus in self-sacrificing obedience. When faith begins to touch a person's wallet or begins to touch a person's entertainment or begins to touch a person's bad habits or their preconceptions, they either walk away or they change their faith to accommodate their sinfulness. Either way, they become the poster children for seeds who have been choked out by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. They don't understand what the gospel... They they don't accept what the gospel has truly asked of them. We talked about it this morning in Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. They can't understand that. They have no conception. They don't want that. They didn't sign up for that. They signed up for the good, the goodies, the benefits. They signed up for a heavenly home. They signed up for fire insurance, right? They signed up for all of the health and the wealth and the joy and the the contentment and all of those things that Christianity is supposed to represent to this world. They didn't sign up for self-sacrifice. They didn't sign up for mortifying the deeds of the flesh. 
They didn't sign up for bearing their cross. They are the seeds who began to perhaps sink, take root, but the cares of this world choked those seeds out before they could bear fruit. But take heart. There's a fourth scenario. There's one more type of Christian. Matthew 13, 20, excuse me, one more type of, of soil, not, not Christian. There hasn't been a Christian yet. We're, we're getting to the Christian. One more type of soil. Matthew 13, 23. But he that received the seed into good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit. Some sixtyfold, excuse me, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Some people bear more fruit than others. Some people don't bear a whole lot of fruit at all, but they're saved yet so as by fire. Some people are just across the line, but you know what? They've still borne fruit. The fruit of accepting their cross. The fruit of accepting the shame. The fruit of accepting the gospel. They, they may never push themselves to the limits of how God could use them. They may never become the sharpest tool in God's toolbox. But they did bear fruit. This is about the seeds that fall on the good ground. Take root and bear fruit. These are the men and women of the world who hear the gospel, understand the gospel, receive the gospel with gladness, and whose love and loyalty to the truth of the gospel override every other love and loyalty in their lives. And so they come out of the world and they sit with Christ in the heavenlies. These are the men and women who get out of the Jesus fan section and get onto the field. These are the men and women whose actions validate what they say with their mouths. These are the men and women who not only want the gospel, but are willing to accept what the gospel asks of them. Like a marriage. Marriage is such a beautiful picture of salvation. Where a bride looks at her groom and says those words, for better or for worse. Right? For better or for worse. You see, if you have a marriage and the vows are, I take you in the good times, I take you in prosperity, I take you in joy, I take you in happiness, I take you in health, till status quo changes, that's a marriage that's not going to be around too long, is it? That's not a commitment. That's not a covenant. That's a fling. But when a bride gets up, she looks into the eyes of that man and she says, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, till death do us part. What she's saying is, I'm yours, you're mine. The gospel is not a for better, for richer, for health gospel. The gospel is for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us unify. <laughs> till death and I see you face to face, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is salvation. The true believer sees the victory over sin, sees persecution in the name of Christ, sees the joy and gladness of the redeemed, sees the self-sacrifice of a life yielded unto the Lord, and he says, I want it. 
because I love you, because you've saved me from my own rebellion, because you've saved me from the depths of my own sin, because you sent your son Jesus Christ to bear my shame. I love you. I'll bear your shame. You bore mine. I'll bear yours. You bore mine. You gave your life for me. I'll give my life for you. You can have it, God. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to me. To thee. Excuse me. Take it. It's yours. My heart is your throne. That's bearing fruit unto salvation. Paul sat in Berea teaching those Christians who searched the Scriptures daily to validate his message, right? That's what the Bereans did. They searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. And Paul wondered, were those seeds that he was sowing that were received with joy, the seeds of the Gospel, were they sitting on stony ground? Or were they sitting on ready soil? Would they be pulled out by the persecution of the world, the persecution and the tribulation of the men and women around them? Or were those seeds already deep and strong, rooted in that soil, bearing fruit? Well, we know the answer already because Paul gave us the answer in chapter 1 and chapter 2. They had borne fruit. See, bearing the fruit of the gospel isn't inherently something that takes time. It's not like, like uh, bearing fruit in real life, right? We plant something in, in its season and it takes months of cultivation. Sometimes it does in a, in a believer's life. Sometimes it takes months, maybe years of cultivation. Sometimes it happens like that. It's sunk. It bears fruit. It's immediate. So we know the answer already. But Paul didn't know the answer as he sat in Berea. That's why he sent Timotheus. That's why he could no longer forbear. That was the, the care and the concern in his heart. Can you feel that concern? Can you understand it as we learn from Matthew 13? Where Paul was, what he felt. The Thessalonians were bearing fruit the fruit that's indicative of the redeemed. And we'll talk about that next week the victory of the ministry. But as we close today, we need to bring these concepts close to home. I wanted to make some points. I wanted to give you a template. I wanted to lay down some organized thoughts. But as I was writing this message, things just started flowing. And so, I'll just let you know what what flowed. You are in a battle for the souls of the men and women of this world the souls of your family members, the souls of your friends, the souls of your neighbors, souls of your co-workers, the souls of those who are in your city, at your grocery store, at your thrift store, at your hardware store, at your auto shop. It is God who does the saving work in the heart of a man. You can't do it. It is God who convicts the heart of sin. You can't. But for whatever reason, God has chosen His church to be the method through which men and women hear the Gospel. And often, 
His church is also the means by which the soil of men's heart is cultivated into a place where they are ready to receive the gospel. Maybe right now your family is stony ground. Maybe your family has the fence up so that when the seeds hit it, they'll fall by the wayside. Maybe your coworker is one who you know the thorns of the world are all over his life. And maybe every time you send out seeds, all they do is get choked out. But maybe, just maybe, the testimony of your life is slowly clipping away at those thorns. Maybe, just maybe, your stand for what is right is tilling up that stony ground. Maybe, just maybe, getting through that trial in your life and maintaining joy and maintaining the proper outlook is pushing that fence over that's, calling, that's causing those seeds to fall by the wayside and not hit the soil of their hearts. And maybe, just maybe, your seeds or your testimony will one day bring them to a place where the seed hits the soil and the soil is ready. And that seed will bear, will dig in, the root will spring out, and it will bear fruit. That's God's job. That's not yours. Your job is to send the seeds and your job is to live the testimony that will help cut away those thorns, till up that soil, move those fences. This battle is dangerous. You face the foe that is your flesh, constantly seeking to pull you away from God and into yourself, constantly seeking to make you the island Christian, the mountain Christian, the Christian who is not interested in going out and telling, but is interested in tucking in and hiding. That's your flesh. That's not of God. You will face the hindrance of the devil, tempting you, seeking to lead you astray, distracting you by the world that's around you. You don't, you don't need to do that. You don't need to spend time ministering to others. You don't need to give your neighbor a call and invite him to church. You don't need to pass out those tracts. Don't worry about it. Let the Lord deal with it in some other way. You face the foe that is the flesh of the unbeliever. See, not only are you battling your flesh, you're battling, in a manner of speaking, their flesh. The Holy Spirit's dealing with that. But it's a contention that we have to deal with. And you face the hindrance of the devil on their account, tempting them, distracting them. And when they do accept the gospel, the job is not over. You must then guide and lead them along so that when they face the trials and tribulations and sacrifices of the Christian life, they love God and His Word enough to stand with Christ no matter what. The battle is dangerous for that reason. And in your mind, if you're anything like me, will be the faces of those who have been to the cusp of overcoming the world only to fall back into the mire and deceit that is their own sin. I remember down in Florida when I was there in, in college, Dean Boyd. Dean Boyd was 96 years old. 
and he was at the nursing home. It was a it was an assisted living center that I ministered at every week. I was the leader of a of a ministry to an assisted living center. It's very similar to Parkview. Dean Boyd never ever ever came to the service, with the exception of maybe twice. I had to come to him every week. And I'd sit down and I'd listen to him tell me about all of his travels, how he lived such a good life. And then I'd ask him, Mr. Boyd, you know you're a sinner. You know that when you leave this earth, there's a a life to come. And you know that if you were to die right now, you'd be in hell. Mr. Boyd, when are you going to accept Christ? And from time to time, I would sit there and I'd be telling him these things and he would have tears in his eyes. Tears in his eyes, streaming down his face, knowing that he needed to get saved. And he'd look at me and he'd say, you need to travel. I've lived such a good life. No regrets. And I say, Mr. Boyd, I'll see you next week. This close. But as far as I know, he never made it all the way. That's the casualties of this battle that we fight. Men and women who will fall by the wayside. But ladies and gentlemen, Christ told us something in John 16:33. He told us this. These things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. For all that stands against us, for all of the reasons that men and wimply, men and women simply will not listen. For all of the reasons why men and for all of the hurdles that have to be gotten over, our flesh, the devil in our lives, their flesh, the devil in their lives, for all of these things that stand against us, we serve a God that has overcome all of it. We serve a God who has overcome it. And do you want proof that He's overcome it? Go downstairs, flick the light on in the bathroom, and take a hard look in the mirror. Because each one of us is proof that God has overcome it. Because you sit in this room this evening having received the Word of God with joy and it having borne fruit in your lives unto salvation and therefore you have overcome by the grace of God. And if it can happen to you, it can happen to anyone. Paul was afraid, not that these men and women wouldn't persevere in their salvation, but that these men and women had never borne the fruit of salvation. This same Paul, however, in the context of the saving work of God in this world, wrote this in Romans 8.31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? It's not your job to save the souls of men. It's the Holy Spirit's job to save the souls of men. It's not your job to convince men's heart of sin. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convince men's heart of sin. It's your job to labor for the hearts and souls of men. It's your job to fight for the hearts and souls of men. It's your job to pray for the hearts and souls of men. It's your job to soften the soil through testimony and teaching. It's your job to disciple new believers into a deeper understanding, not just of a decision, but of a commitment 
not of a decision, of a commitment. It's your job to exhibit this commitment to Christ in your own life. Paul was fearful. He was fearful because he lacked the time to disciple these men and women to ascertain the fruit of their salvation in their lives. And he knew the danger that these men and women faced being left alone on the battlefield of life. But he also understood that if they had indeed received and accepted the gospel, that the Holy Spirit could do the rest. Because if God be for us, who can be against us? If you and I saw the danger of the battlefield for what it really is, would we not spend more time making sure we were prepared? Our children were prepared? If we saw the danger for what it is, would we not ensure that the decision for Christ was indeed a commitment to Christ before we notch someone's name in the belt of the redeemed? If we saw the danger for what it is, would we not be on our knees pleading with God to prepare men's hearts, to protect men's hearts from the manifold ways that the gospel can be snatched away from them? This was the source of Paul's concern. Paul feared that the seeds he and his companions had sown without careful tending would find themselves with shallow roots that would be scorched by the sun of persecution before they were ever going to be able to bear fruit. And in our own community, in our own country, we should not fear, not be anxious, but we should give the gospel, we should spread the seeds of the gospel of Jesus Christ with a godly concern that our seeds, as we sow them, and tend to the hearts of men might find themselves choked out by the thorns of this world, by materialism and lust and greed, destroying those buds that might just bear fruit. And when we see it this way, we will develop an urgency to proclaim the truth that we otherwise may not have. When we see it this way, we'll develop an urgency to pray, perhaps prayers that before we counted as a luxury, Because when we see it this way, we will not be able to avoid the reality that we are in a battle. That only the gospel of Jesus Christ, the light of this world, can overcome. And only God's Spirit can surmount. And we'll finally see that we are the tools that God wants to use to win this battle for the souls of men. Let's pray together.